Good morning. It's good to be with you here today as we uh, gather as God's people. It's kind of fun to be here in my son's position. If some of you don't realize that, I'm the father, he's the son. You know, at some point, the, the children take over, and he does a good job of it. Um, would you turn, you can look in your bulletin, or you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Our text this morning is the first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 37. <clears throat> Let us give attention to God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream... And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down before me. But when he told told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to the preaching of your word, the proclamation of your truth, we ask, Lord, that you give each and every one of us here ears to hear, hearts that are receptive, minds that can understand. We pray for that work of your spirit, Lord, not only in the hearers but in the speaker as well, that you might be glorified and that your truth would encourage and build up your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you uh, ever noticed that there are some towns or cities 
uh, that are seriously misnamed. There is a town not too far north of Orlando, Florida, uh, named Mount Dora. Now, if, if you, any of you know much about Florida, any town using the term Mount in their name uh, would be strange, you would expect. I mean, the highest point in Florida is 353 feet above sea level. Yeah. And so it, it, it is certainly true that this city in central Florida, called Mount Dora, as it rests 184 feet above sea level. A mountain? Can you imagine someone trying to sell t-shirts which proclaim Step aside, Mount Washington, I climbed Mount Dora. Of course, it's not the only uh, misnamed city in our country. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, the city of brotherly love. I can assure you that at least at the level of sports fans, that city does not fit the moniker. One time, at an Eagles football game, Santa Claus was booed and was pelted with snowballs. As we come to our text this morning, Genesis 37, we have to say that it is not about brotherly love. More like brotherly hate. This word brothers is used something like 20 times in the chapter. Yet this is a story about brothers who could not get along. With Genesis 37, we come to the last section of the book of Genesis, called here in verse 2, the generations of Jacob. Um, If you know anything about the book of of Genesis, you realize that that phrase, the generations of, is repeated ten times in the book of Genesis, and it is, uh, it, it actually outlines the book for you. Well, this is the last time, and it tells us this is the generations of Jacob. Um, seems a little strange when you read through it, because what you find out is, it is largely about Joseph and his travels. And as a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 27 is where Jacob really comes to the forefront and it seemed to be the story of him where you have him trying to steal with his mother Esau's birthright. In our text, verses 1 to 11, we are introduced to the main characters involved in the events which are going to follow. Joseph his brothers, and his father, Jacob, slash Israel, as he is now called. And we were also introduced to the main complications of the plot, which is, in fact, that Joseph's brothers hate him. And and to be fair, I'm not sure that Joseph was very fond of them. This text, it has some very familiar uh, aspects in the story of the Bible, and I think we tend to usually 
think of this text, when we hear it read, we think of Joseph and his uh, technicolor coat. It makes a great Sunday school story. I can remember from being a kid. Some movies have been made of it. I'm not sure how good they are. Um, but, but notice how when we recognize the hostility that is so exhibited in these verses between brothers, how it recalibrates the way we think about the story. Joseph is, of course, central to what follows in many ways. Even if his special coat is really just uh, more or less an incidental detail. But it's not just about Joseph. Nor is it simply God's, about God's work in and through Joseph. This is a story about Joseph and his brothers. Which actually makes sense if you think about the original audience for whom Moses is writing as he writes this in the wilderness, as he leads Israel, this, this new young nation toward the promised land. The story of Genesis 37, in Genesis 30, chapter 37 through 50, is, is a story that, that sort of sets out in front of them their forefathers. Uh, uh, this band of brothers were the founding fathers of Israel. The, at this point, the ten brothers of Joseph become part of the, the heads of the ten tribes, and the last two tribes are the sons of Joseph, Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so it is this group who were deeply flawed and sinful individuals is who God chose to make into a nation belonging to him. But again, these chapters are not just about Joseph and his brothers. It is a key part of, about God's grand plan for Israel and what he is up to in the lives of his people as a whole. God's purpose was not just to create and choose the Israel of Moses' day to be his worshiping community. Rather, his goal was to create for himself a renewed and restored Israel. They were to be the spiritual descendants of Abraham who together would form a worshiping family in Christ that would go beyond the physical descendants of Israel. They would encompass people from every tribe and every nation on earth. And so as Moses narrates this familiar story, this family story, in this final section of Genesis... He begins by relating to us what God was doing with this particularly dysfunctional family. It starts with Joseph, who I would suggest is probably the least obviously messed up member of the family. Now I use that word least uh, advisedly. But, but though Joseph 
is the hero of the story. He is far from perfect in everything he does. Not even close. When he comes on the scene in Genesis 37, he is 37, excuse me, Genesis 37, he is 17 years old, and he has been sent out into the fields to help his brothers with the tending of the flocks. Our text says Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah, his father's wives. Now notice what he says here. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah, his father's wives. And so I think this is actually much as much a, a, a job description as it is a reference to his age. He is sent along with his brothers, but his task, in a sense, was to do all the menial and unimportant jobs as the youngest, as the lackey. There is a a pecking order in this family, not unusual to what I would say even today, probably particularly in farm families or ranching families where there's a lot of work to be done and children at a very young age are involved and from the youngest to from the oldest to the youngest and the one at the bottom is at the the bottom of the pecking order the last rung of the ladder being the last one in our family not a farming family not a ranching family but I can tell you there's still some truth to it and what does Joseph do he tries to improve his lot with his father And so we read at the end of verse 2, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. The youngest tend to do this. Not that others don't as well, but I think the youngest tend to do this more maybe. Joseph tattles on them. And we're not told what the situation was or what he said but in fact what is going on here is actually worse than tattling in our English a bad report could either be true or false but the Hebrew idiom has the connotation of a false or malicious report for example um, when the 12 uh, 12 spies were sent into Israel uh, into Canaan to uh, spy out the land and come back and report to the people. Uh, Ten of those spies, we are told, scoped out the promised land and they brought back a bad report. Now, you read the report, it, it wasn't necessarily false, but it was misleading. And it wasn't, in a real sense, malicious. In Proverbs, this word is translated as slander. So you get the picture. Joseph was spinning his tail to Jacob to intentionally put his brothers in the worst possible light. Whether he told the whole truth or part of it or none of it, his purpose and the way he told it were for their detriment. And so as you can see, he plays a significant part in perpetuating the fractures in the family. And, and on top of that, 
We have the way that Joseph handled his dreams. He has two dreams, and both of the dreams uh, essentially put him up high and his family down low. The first one is the, the gathering of the sheaves, bundling them up, and his, his sheaves stands up straight. The other sheaves of his brothers gathered around it and bowed down before him. And then there is the second one. The one in which the, the moon, the star, uh, excuse me, the moon, the sun, and the 11 stars all bow down before him. And so Joseph, who already knows that his brothers despised him because of his favorite position, now, you know, is sort of forward in, 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 in sharing these dreams, which declares that he is not only the favorite son of his father, but God apparently has, has chosen him as favorite as well. I, I think... Whatever the purpose of the dreams were in God's mind, I think the purpose in Joseph's mind was to rub his, his brother's noses in it. I'm sure you've probably met people sort of like Joseph, pretty bright. But you know, have you ever met those kind of bright people that there seems to be a missing link when it comes to uh, uh, social skills? And you can say, what in the world were they thinking in saying that? You could say that, I think, about Joseph. Then there is Jacob's dysfunctional, dysfunction as the father of the family. The special coat was not the first indicator of his preference of Joseph. If you go back to Genesis chapter 32, we find Jacob with all his family and uh, with all his possessions returning uh, to the promised land to Canaan from Padam Aram. And approaching him in the distance is his brother Esau with 400 men, a small army. And so Jacob is terrified. He, he, he's so fearful that, that Esau is planning a massacre of his family. And so Joseph makes, uh, Jacob makes plans. He takes the children of Zilpah and Bilhah and the mother, mothers, and puts them at the very front of the procession. And right behind them, he takes Leah and her sons, and places them. Then all the, uh, the rest of the possessions and the, the, the flocks and, and stuff come. And at the very back, he places Rebecca and Joseph. Those who are in the front are in the place of greatest danger. And those who are at the back are at the place of maximum safety. How do you think those older brothers felt when they realized their father considered them expendable in modern warfare, cannon fodder. Now fast forward to Genesis 37 and we have the incident with, with Joseph's richly ornamented, uh, ornamented coat. Now, not to pop any bu bubbles or anything, but not really sure that it was a coat of many colors. That, that's 
that's under discussion among scholars because the, the actual Hebrew is very difficult that we don't actually understand the word quite. The idea of many colors comes from the Greek Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it may have been a coat of many colors, but it's at least a very special coat, maybe even a royal-type garment. But whatever the precise kind of robe it was, it was certainly not the kind that you would wear if you were planning to work in the fields with the sheep and goat. Now, if you read toward the end of the chapter, you, you find that that's, in a sense, exactly what Joseph does when he goes out to his brothers in the fields. <clears throat> and, and what makes this all the more striking is the sequence of events here. We hear about this robe after Joseph has already been in the field with his brothers and has returned and given a bad report. His father rewards him, it seems, with a special coat. Maybe he had received that earlier, but anyway, it's brought up at this point. And the next time the brothers go into the fields, Joseph uh, doesn't even go with them. Uh, he, he doesn't go to tend the flocks. Presumably he is back home with his fancy coat, with his feet up on the couch, while his brothers are out in the dusty, dirty fields. It is only when he goes to check on them for his dad that he wears his coat and they see him again. It's no wonder they hate him. But if you think about it, you have to, you have to wonder about Jacob, don't you? Of course, Jacob was repeating the toxic family pattern from his own youth. In Jacob's family, his father, Isaac, had a favorite son. And it was not Jacob. It was Esau. And of course, his mother, Rebekah, had her favorite son. And that was Jacob. And now, Jacob turns around and perpetuates the same kind of sibling rivalry among his own sons. When you come to the brothers, there's no ambiguity on their part. They were united in their hatred of the dreamer. They, they already hated him when he received the coat. They detested him so much that they couldn't even greet him. That's what you read in, 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 in verse 2 verse 4. But when his brothers saw that the father, their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to them. The statement they could not speak peacefully to him literally is they could not say shalom to him. The traditional Jewish greeting but also a word of great peace and, and richness to it. It, they, could, they could talk that way. They, were so, they detested him so much. That was before the dream started. And after the dreams, they hated him all the more. These were, were dangerous men. Reuben had already shown his disregard for morality and the family structure. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, we read of Reuben going in and sleeping with, his, with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. 
this act had, had more to do with rebellion than it did with lust. Simeon and Levi had massacred an unsuspecting town back in chapter 34, while Jacob did nothing to stop them. There is an ominous atmosphere in this story, even before we get to the events later in the chapter. This is a dysfunctional family. It would, it would match, I think, some of the worst dysfunctional families we might find in our own world today. This family is in desperate need of divine intervention. And I think as we read the story, it is important uh, that we don't forget about God and all these machinations. Even though he is not mentioned by name even once in these verses, it does not mean he's not active. Throughout the Joseph narrative, God is visible primarily through his acts of providence. He works all the details of the story together to bring about his own purposes in the lives of each of these characters. Here in this passage, God's most obvious um, action is sending the dreams to Joseph. But you might well wonder, what in the world was he thinking? Why did he toss a lighted match into a powder keg of family dysfunction? He knew well that the pain and heartache and suffering, that it would inevitably result. You don't have to be an omniscient deity to see where this story is likely to end up. But it is precisely because he is an omniscient and sovereign deity that God can do this. He knew exactly how Joseph would respond to the dreams, as well as exactly how Jacob and his brothers would react. None of the circumstances were outside God's control for even a nanosecond. He knew what would happen. And he knew how he would use every scrap of pain, suffering, and dysfunction. How he would shape the individual lives of the members of this family into something noble and great. And by this he would accomplish his own redemptive purposes, both for this family and through them, for the entire world. There was nothing careless about God sending Joseph these dreams. It was part of his perfect plan to bring into being his chosen, united, worshiping community. What was God up to in all this? I think in the first place, there was a work that, needed, that he needed to do in Joseph's heart. Joseph was not yet ready to be a leader. At this point, he was a, a brash, overconfident, self-centered young man. He needed to be prepared in God's classic school of church leadership. This involved a, a lengthy time of 
cooling his heels, sitting on the sidelines, waiting for what God had in store from him. Really not unlike Moses. Remember, Moses, after his upbringing in Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep in preparation before God visited him in the burning bush. Joseph would be prepared through trials and temptations and and suffering until God decided he was ready to step onto the stage in his service. The path of spiritual growth for Joseph involved abuse and mistreatment, separation from home and family, being neglected for many years by those he helped. But this training process was necessary to make him into the person God was calling him to be. It was precisely these trials and difficulties that would show Joseph his weaknesses as well as his strengths. It would cast him back repeatedly on his need to rely on his God. These were lessons he could never learned while sitting on his duff comfortably in his father's house, dressed in his fancy robe. Yet at the same time, God also gave Joseph dreams at the outset of this difficult journey. The dreams were bigger excuse me, the dreams were the trigger that launched his brothers on their treachery. They were also given to Joseph to build in him a solid hope in God's promise. Joseph would later have to return to these dreams time and again, trusting that God, the God who gave them to him, would one day fulfill them. No matter how unlikely that came to seem. Perhaps you're in a phase of God's training program right now. You feel like your life is on hold, but maybe worse, he's forgotten all about you. Maybe your gifts have not been recognized, or right now there's not any opportunity to use them. Perhaps you have been misunderstood and mistreated, even by the church community, God's people. And you wonder... If God will ever open the door for you to serve in a meaningful way. How should you respond to this period in your life? You don't have the personal dreams like Joseph to fall back on. But you do have something better. You have the solid promise of God that having begun a good work in you, he will bring it. To completion. It may be that this period of painful uh, training will equip you to serve God more fully further down the road. In other cases, cases, it may not be easy to see the plan in what God is doing. Still we know that he is always at work and that he will bring that work to completion in his people on the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, during the dark days of trial and suffering, 
Hold on to God's assurance that he will use your life in the ways that he sees fit to bring glory to himself. And that the path will always be good for you. And now, now let me just say, I know that what I've just said here is, it's solid Christian truth. It really is. But I also know that sometimes it almost seems to us like pie in the sky and it doesn't really help when we're going through those times. And I know that what I'm saying may come off as pious. And, and, I, and I am not holding myself up. But, but 71 years has given me some perspective. Things have not always gone well in my life. I think in most of those difficult situations I have found myself, I recognize that my failures and weaknesses have given aid to the enemy. I don't even now understand all that God has been doing in my life. But one thing I do see more clearly, I don't know if I see it clearly enough, but I see more clearly now, is his hand. His grace, his keeping, his hold on me. Though I often fail, he has not. God's training route for you may take you along a path you would never have chosen for yourself. A path that will wind you through the valley of deep shadow. And you take, in, as, and as you uh, go into battles, battles from which you will emerge with wounds whose depth only you will know. Yet he will, nevertheless, be with you every step of the way, as he has promised. Shaping you for greatness in his sight for each of those difficult and painful experiences. Preparing you for entering your promised rest. His, his promised rest. We can look at scripture and see that played out on the pages. You can look at it in your own life. And see testimony to it. But you have that sure promise of the God who sent his son to die for your sins. That he will bring it to completion. And though you may not understand. In all things he is good. To those he loves who he has called. And I can only say, in those times it's difficult. Just hold on to that, though you may not understand it. Just hold. Because the one who holds you is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way we see uh, your work and your faithfulness played out very messed up people. 
very dysfunctional families. You didn't pick the best of the best when you decided on, on creating a people for yourself. You created, you chose sinners saved by grace. Father, help us to rest in that and to rest in you alone in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.